WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And on Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States announced that it will consider former President Donald Trump's appeal of his disqualification from the Colorado GOP primary ballot and moving with relative speed in a matter that could prove consequential in the 2024 presidential election. The justices set oral arguments for Thursday, February 8th, and fortunately, it is first Monday which, uh, of the month. Um, last, uh, last Monday was New Year's Day, so uh, that means that we have Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller with us of Western New England University School of Law uh, to share his views about it, and welcome, Bruce. Hey, Buzz, Bill, good to, good to be with you guys again. So there is a lot to unpack in this. Oh, it's, even for us yes. lawyers, it's a complicated business. It is a complicated case for what looks on the face of it to be a pretty simple and straightforward provision of the Constitution. If you have uh, taken an oath to support the Constitution and betray that oath by engaging in an insurrection, you are ineligible to hold any federal office. Um, that sounds straightforward it enough. It does, and what is, is remarkable is that this case raises a whole array of issues that are not about whether former President Trump violated that provision. They're all about how that provision in our constitutional system ought to be enforced. And I, the Supreme Court did not specify which issues they want the parties to brief, which issues they are going to hear. And from reviewing the Colorado record, I can spot about a half a dozen that are completely separate from whether Trump actually is an insurrectionist. But doesn't it start there, Bruce? Doesn't yes. it start with the question of is he an insurrectionist? Yes. Who makes that determination? Yes. What is the standard right. of proof? Is he an insurrectionist, of course, is why we're all interested in this. But who makes the decision is what the case is going to be about. And How by is what this provision going to be enforced? What's the criteria? Do you need and to do what are the criteria for, for, for doing it? And what's right? the standard of proof? What is the standard of proof? These are issues that would normally be captured through our due process clause. The due process clause provides that no one can be deprived of anything important, life, liberty, or property, without due process of law. And one of the challenges Trump makes is that neither Colorado nor Maine have afforded him due process. And there, what he's saying is, well, look, I didn't have a chance for a jury trial. There wasn't any discovery. Their discovery is the process of exchange of information before a trial. Um, there was no subpoena power available to me. The proceedings in Colorado, in front of secretaries of state and low-level courts, and in Maine, in front of a secretary of state, are simply not suited to making a weighty decision like whether a, a, someone who's seeking a federal office is, is an insurrectionist or not. That argument is not a silly argument. It's a very formidable argument. He also says that the reliance on the January 6th report, not that they couldn't rely on it at all, but excessive weight was placed on that because the January 6th committee was anything but an adversarial proceeding. 
There was no cross-examination there either. There were no witnesses allowed, he claims, in support of Trump. So we have this due process question, which is the one that you are raising. But we have an array of others. Uh, is former President Trump an officer of the United States? I think obviously he is. I think uh, that's, the that's weakest a question argument. because because Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment talks about officers. It doesn't specifically say president. It does say congressman. It, it does, does say does senator. Does congressmen, senators, and any other officers of the United States. So the question of whether does a president is an officer. Yeah. the president? Now, I, I think the stronger argument is that he definitely is. Did Trump take the relevant oath is another question that he raises because the 14th Amendment says oath to support the Constitution the presidential oath does not have the word support in it. It says preserve, protect, and defend. Now that, I think, also is a pretty silly argument, but it's nevertheless one that Trump uh, is, is making. Well, he is, also is it silly yep. in the context, and I'm, I'm interrupting yep. you, I'm sure, afraid, sure. maybe you're going exactly where I'm yep. asking you, but this Supreme Court has some justices, the, yep. the more right-wing yep. justices that are such literalists, yep that I suppose I could see them saying that uh, the word support is different than protecting and defending. Oh, yeah, it is, it is, it is different. It, it is, it is uh, etymologically, syntactically different, but uh, uh, preserve, protect, defend requires support. Look, the trial-level judge in Colorado reached that decision as well. Anything is possible here. The point here is we've got all these questions that are not about whether Trump actually is an insurrectionist. Another one is, well, no one can enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment by bringing a lawsuit unless Congress has authorized it. And this raises a deeply fundamental and unresolved question in our constitutional history, and that is whether the Constitution itself can be used as a sword or whether or not you need an act of Congress if you want to use it as a plaintiff. Now, this is a serious, serious argument. Um, most of the time when a constitutional suit is brought, um, it's brought under the, under the authority of a federal statute from, from the Reconstruction period, uh, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, but not these suits. And so the question here is, can you enforce the Constitution through a, a private suit? Which raises the question, who has standing That's to right. bring the case? And the best arguments for a uh, 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 constitution as a sword is for somebody who has an injury. An injury and, in fact. An injury in fact. And we don't have any injured plaintiffs who filed any of these suits in Maine or Colorado. I want to just rewind that tape a yep. little bit. It's a great conversation you guys are having, but just in case people don't know, yep. The question of whether something is judiciable, subject to review, involves uh, three or four different things. One is it is it moot because it's no longer an issue? Is it ripe because it's become an issue? Or do they have standing? So yes. what is standing and what is the issue? Standing How that on refers this? to the idea that in federal court, there has to be a case or controversy in order for the federal court to have power to act because that's, that's what the Constitution says in Article 3. says. The job of judicial review grows out of the responsibility to decide cases. It's not issuing abstract opinions on the Constitution. 
in order for there to be a case, somebody has to be harmed. And the injury that is inflicted by Trump appearing on the ballot, well, it's an injury to the whole public. It's an injury to the polity. It's not necessarily a harm to any particular person. So if these suits had been initially brought, the main and Colorado matters, in federal court, they wouldn't have lasted five minutes because there's not an injured person bringing them. The only injured person now is arguably former President Donald Trump, who now that he has been deprived of the right to be on the ballot, uh, can present an injury to the Supreme Court. So he's injured, but initially there would have been no federal court injury. And this in, is an introduction to what I think is Trump's strongest argument. And that is that the design of Section 3, in connection with the rest of the Constitution, shows uh, that it was intended to be enforced only politically and not through lawsuits um, at all. Now, that, that's a, an, uh, an argument that I don't love. That is, I don't want this argument to be successful. But there is an awful lot of force behind it. Here's where it starts. The main targets of Section 3 were, as you said a little while ago, Buzz, senators and members of Congress. They're the ones who are mentioned. So they had what they wanted to secede from the union. Yep. Now uh, the yep. South lost the war. They yep. wanted to come back and serve in Congress. Yeah, what, and so they passed. One example is the, is the Confederate governor of North Carolina ran for the Senate after the Civil War and ended up getting elected. And under Section 3 was excluded from the Senate by the senators after he was elected. And, and that he, was in 1868, three years after the yeah, surrender. It was in 1870. And, and, the, and, and, and the reason that was the Senate who excluded him is that Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution says that each house shall be the judge of the qualification of its members. And that, the Supreme Court has ruled, is an exclusive power that belongs to the houses of Congress and the houses of Congress only. A famous case that we all remember, uh, maybe not Dan, involving uh, Congressman Adam Clayton Powell of New York established that proposition. So if it's enforceable politically by the House and Senate for members of Congress who are the primary targets, why isn't it enforceable politically with respect to the president as well? Well, one answer might have been, how do you do it? Well, we have an answer to that now, too, in the text of the Constitution. And the text of the Constitution, the 20th Amendment, adopted in 1933, provides that if a president-elect is not qualified, and if you think about that, we only know who the president-elect is, after the election, if that's true, then the vice president-elect acts as president until a qualified president can be selected. When in the world would that happen? Well, the 20th Amendment doesn't say. But we know when and how that would happen. It would happen on January the 6th, which is the point at which the Electoral College results are presented. Uh, to Congress. So you're saying, if I understand it, Professor Bruce yep. Miller, that Trump's argument, one of his arguments, yep. is he can be on the ballot, 
Yep. It's not up to a court or a secretary of state yep. to say he can or can't be on the ballot. Exactly. He can be on the ballot. And if it turns out at the end of the election that he, A, wins and B, is disqualified, well, then there are procedures in place to handle that. But that doesn't mean that people don't get to vote. That's exactly what he means. That's precisely the argument he is making. And, and for that reason, uh, there ought be no court proceeding at all on Section 13. I mean, on Section uh, 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, are we about due to take a break? We're going to, but not until I ask another question. Sure. Because uh, what we know from the yep. Constitution... From Article 2 of the Constitution is elections for president for national office are governed by the states. It yes. says it in the Constitution. Yes. So this was a Colorado and yes. so, and Maine as well, yeah. but let's focus on Colorado. That's yep. where the appeal's coming from. Yep. The state of Colorado, its court said you're ineligible, you're yep. disqualified because we find you to be an insurrectionist. Yep. And now, is it judiciable in the federal court system to look at the state making its own determination pursuant to the Constitution of who can and can't appear in a state ballot. Now, Buzz, we're going to exactly the same place. This whole idea that something is a political question rather than a judicial question, even though it's a constitutional issue, is one that the Supreme Court has over and over again said disables only the federal courts. Uh, most recently in the uh, gerrymander cases, the court has said, even though for purposes of federal judicial review, uh, gerrymandering is a political question, federal courts can't touch it, state courts can have at it. That is, the political question idea is purely a separation of powers problem. State courts can still act. So it seems to me that if Trump is right that this is a political question, there is one court that is disabled from hearing it, and that's the Supreme Court of the United States, which is the first federal court to whom it's been presented. And what that would mean is that each of the states could, under this argument, decide individually whether Trump appears on the ballot in their states. Wow. It is our first Monday segment with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller. And uh, we are on radio, so you can't see that Dan Torres is biting his lips so hard it's almost bleeding on this question of the political as aspect of this. We're going to take a break and be right back and continue this fascinating conversation. You've got no hope, you've got no plan, but the billionaire, yeah, he's your man, because Trump is on your side. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller from Western New England University School of Law. And we are talking about the Supreme Court's having granted certiorari, that is, agreed to hear the case involving the appeal of former President Donald Trump from the Colorado Supreme Court's decision that, in fact, he's disqualified in Colorado from appearing on the ballot. And so, Professor, you were talking about the political nature versus the juridical nature yeah. of the question. Yeah, if it turns out that uh, for federal court review purposes, this whole thing is a, quote, political question, up to Congress to figure out. That only disables the federal courts. 
the Supreme Court, and this is where we left off, has said that when something is, is uh, politically decidable for federal court purposes, it does not interfere with the ability of states to act. And Buzz, this is consistent with your point before the break that in our Constitution, it is the states who are charged with running presidential elections. So it would in some ways make sense for the states to make this decision. The problem here with the way this argument works is when the states make their decisions, they are unreviewable by any federal court, that is the Supreme Court, they would be reviewable only in Congress. So this would bring us back to where Bill began us, which is with this problem of due process. It would mean two things, and I've changed my mind on the first thing. The first thing is, well, you're going to have different outcomes in different states. And Buzz, you reminded us, well, we may have a design that you have different outcomes in different states as to who can be on the ballot. And each state court can only determine what happens in their states. We might have in our constitutional design a situation where uh, an accused insurrectionist can appear on the ballot in some states and not in others. Um, and if Congress doesn't like that, they have ample opportunity to correct it. Now, I'm not happy with how that works politically, but it might be consistent with the structure of the Constitution. The problem here is, and we've already seen it, there's a half a dozen states that are getting ready to adopt retaliatory measures to exclude Biden from the ballot. Yeah, because they'll find that Biden's an insurrection. They absolutely will. They'll say that the uncontrolled border uh, is designed by Biden. And so for that reason, he's an insurrectionist and is off the ballot. And this whole argument that I've just suggested would allow them to do that as well. And this is the due process point. Um, has Trump been given due process of law in Colorado? Will he be given it in Maine? And I think the answer to that is it's very hard to tell because these secretary of state proceedings on who's on the ballot are not designed to resolve a serious substantive constitutional question like somebody whether somebody's an insurrectionist. There's, so, an, yeah. there's an old axiom in, in, in law school that, uh, that bad facts make for bad law. This, uh, you referred to this as a paradox. Yeah. This is um, it's very complicated because wherever you land, and I know where I land on the question of whether he should be on the ballot, yeah. I think Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Yeah. He acted as an insurrectionist. He inspired January 6th, yep. at which time five people died and 140 plus were killed and people were hitting police officers with American yep. flags. Yep. He's an insurrectionist in my view, but I understand what both you and Bill are alluding to, which is this doctrine might end up backfiring on progressives. Oh, it, it, it will, um, uh, unless uh, there is some kind of due process clause review. And if there is due process clause review in the Supreme Court, then it's not any longer a political question. And probably the entire matter is, is up for uh, judicial review. Well, let me put you both on the spot. Uh, let me ask you first, Bill Newman, what's the Supreme Court going to do? Well, I learned long ago that making predictions about appellate decisions before they come down is a really, really uh, uh, fraught idea. Uh, 
So making predictions about how the Supreme Court will write on this blank slate, I think, is really uh, is a fool's errand. But what the heck, fool's errand or not, here I think the Supreme Court is not going to disqualify Trump, and I think that they are going to, among other things, say the idea that there's going to be a hodgepodge of decisions that uh, North Carolina can say that, of course, Trump is not an insurrectionist uh, and that... Uh, uh, the state of Colorado can say, of course, he is, and have this uh, uh, patchwork of decisions across the country is completely unworkable, and the court's not going to go there. Uh, so I think that the most likely uh, outcome is there'll be many, many decisions, many opinions from the court, and that the one that will capture the most votes is that uh, in a weighty matter such as this, due process has to be assiduously followed uh, and adhered to, and it didn't happen in Colorado. That's the easiest way for the court to get out of this and get to the result it wants. Professor Miller. You know, I, I, I agree on both counts, I think, with, with Bill. For, first of all, a lot of people have made a lot of money betting against my predictions uh, in both sports and politics. Um, so it, it, it is, it is a, fool's, a fool's errand. I can't imagine that the this, this Supreme Court, or maybe even any Supreme Court, is going to sustain this disqualification. The problem is that, is that they have to do violence to a bunch of settled doctrines in order, in order to do it. I think they're likely to say that on some matters – if something is uh, for federal court review, a political question not within the power of the federal courts, that that power with Congress uh, displaces the ability of state courts to decide the matter either. And so for that reason, the states cannot enter into the arena of deciding who is an insurrectionist. Only Congress can do it, and Congress can do it only after the election. I also think that we need to spend one minute going back to Bush versus Gore uh, because in that case, the Supreme Court, by its own admission, said we're inventing a new theory of law in order to decide this case. We decide that George Bush should be president. We're going to have this uh, incomprehensible theory about equal protection of ballots. And then the court says, and never, never cite this case to us again. It has no precedential value. It's, we're just making it up for this one decision, and we're done. Yeah. So the Supreme Court was really clear. We are the Supreme Court. We'll do whatever we want. And in this case, the Supreme Court likewise will do whatever it wants. And, and, and it's important to note that what it did was say to the state Supreme Court under the state constitution, as the U.S. Constitution prescribes involving national elections, we're going to uproot your law, your jurisprudence. Well, I want to just turn to the one person in the room who's not a lawyer, who's got strong political chops, uh -oh. uh, to give him the unusual posture of last word. Um, I don't know what my last word's on this. I, this feels like a, well, a couple of things. Feels like a democratic crisis that's unresolved. It's now becoming a legal crisis. It feels like the Supreme Court is now going to federalize elections. That's what it's starting to feel like. And they opened, let's say, Pandora's box in uh, Al Gore, the Al Gore decision uh, back in 2000. Right? Um, that that's that's the concern here is that while these 
states are supposed to run elections. I increasingly hear from you guys that there are now going to be federal sorts of regulations. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it's going to come down from what? The Supreme Court or the federal courts, which is interesting because the whole point of having a decentralized uh, election model is to stop authoritarian you know, dictatorships from manipulating elections by controlling the federal system. And now what I'm seeing is there's greater and greater gravity moving towards the federal government. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, Bruce Miller, thank you so much. It's a, such an important time in our nation's history, and it's really great to have your insights. Thank you. We're going to be right back with Megan Zinn on Writer's Block, which is Assistant Director Lisa Perlman of the brand spanking new Greenfield Public Library. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.